0: The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to the Trident Room, Brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. On today's episode, the Trident Room podcast host, Michael Gannon, sits down with Aviator of the Year, Captain Valerie Smith. Good afternoon. Today I have with me on the Triagrin Podcast is Captain Valerie Smith. She is the first female Aviator of the Year, has been in the Marine Corps for a number of years, deployed uh, multiple times to the South Pacific and Indo-Pacific region. She can speak on great power competition and fly in some of the heavy lift helicopters we have within the Marine Corps fleet. So, Valerie, would you like to to give us a brief introduction, tell us about yourself.
1: Sure, Um, and I appreciate the invitation to speak with you, so I'm happy our schedules were able to sync and happy to be here. I grew up in Bucks County, which is an area in northeast Philadelphia. It's a town called Holland. Um, I went to school at the Naval Academy and graduated in 2012 with a BS in physics. I also minored in Spanish. I joined the Marine Corps. um, What spurred my interest when I was about eight, my family went to the Ohio State Fair for a family vacation. And they had a booth set up there for recruiting with a set of pull-up bars next to it. And a circle had joined around. People were trying to egg each other on to do pull-ups. And just my, my memory of that was I wanted to be part of something like that. A family, competitive, people pushing each other, but it was good-hearted and seemed like a lot of fun to me at the time. As I grew up, I went to work with my mom. She works at um, Naval uh, Systems Command. Uh, it used to be called NAVSEP in Philadelphia. And going in every year for Take Your Child to Work Day, little interactions just kind of fueled that Marine Corps was the right decision for me. And then ultimately at the Naval Academy, a lot of summer training experiences. We got to shadow some Navy enlisted. We also did some Marine Corps um, training in the summer training blocks. And that just really solidified it for me. I wanted to be part of a unit that had that familial camaraderie but also people were always competing to be the best and they expected the best from you so i'm happy with my decision ultimately to commission marine corps and i'm not sure where i picked up the interest to fly helicopters but that that was just something my eight-year-old mind had set on so i think a lot of things just came to fruition from years of, of thinking about it
0: flash forward you were recognized as the first female aviator of the year in the Marine Corps. So walk us uh, through that process and and sort of how you felt through the uh, entire thing.
1: Sure. Um, To my knowledge, the command put together an award write-up. I think the due date was probably around November of 2019. Um. Or it was probably December since it the award for twenty twenty included the entire calendar year of twenty nineteen. And then the award winner Mar admin came out around March, right right around when um COVID had uh, the procedures had kicked in and everyone was wearing random face masks around like neck gaiters and uh, <laughs> the t-shirts, the, the skibby shirts, the Marine Corps sent instructions out how to tie, how to tie that around your face. So um, that, that was very surprising to me. Um, the way the process works, the, the squadron submit their awardees For competition essentially at the MAG level at group, and then the winners at group go up to the wing level to compete. And so then ultimately, the Marine Corps Aviator of the Year is selected at the DCA's office with one of three of the wings. So I was competing at um, Third Mall, I was competing against Second and First Mall's winners. So I definitely wasn't expecting as a 53 pilot to. Have won the award, um, but I am very proud to be recognized for that, and I'm looking forward to the future when a woman winning this award is just the norm and and doesn't have to be some some celebrated first kind of event. Um, and I also think the award itself is misleading because the title of the award is recognizing an individual, but ultimately there's, there's no way I could have won that award by myself without the guidance of my leadership or my peers um, or the hard work of the Marines. So I I really feel it's just truly a testament to the level my unit was operating at, at the time.
0: That's a really good point daughter. And for those who, who don't know, DCA is deputy commandant aviation for the Marine Corps. Um, just so we don't uh, confuse anybody with the uh, military acronym that is our lives. But, yeah, because I, I believe uh, in the aviation, you guys have, have uh, within uh, the training system, you guys, you have, like, a basically uh, trained flight crew. Like, the, the crew is associated, and they have to go through certain qualifications together in order to work together on a, a specific platform with a, a pilot, is that? Am I understanding that process?
1: Um, sure. In the fifty-three community, we fly with an air crew, so it's definitely not a solo event because there's at a minimum at any given time two pilots and the two crew in the back for any event greater than just you know an area familiarization flight. So uh, everyone does contribute to the whole crew at the times learning process. And I think that's a good thing to note. You can sometimes see different communities have different personalities. And I like to think it's just a result of, of who you have to rely on, you know, the jet guys or some, some of the skit guys, they only have themselves and they have to be on point. Whereas and the fifty three community, and I'm sure also Ospreys or a similar airframe with it with the crew, um, we really harp on crew resource management and including everybody. And I just think that that kind of shows sometimes in the personality or way we approach each other because the enlisted that fly with you need need to be comfortable. Bringing things up to you, especially if it was, you know, involving an emergency situation or something. And, and same goes for the pilots. Uh, a brand new first lieutenant in the squadron needs to be comfortable telling the lieutenant colonel CEO something without that fear of the boundaries that are associated with rank.
0: Um, and speaking of CEOs and, and experiences and things like that, uh, let's let's flash uh, backwards a little bit. And go to your, your first duty station, where was it, what did you do, and, and how that sort of ease you into, um, you know, becoming the, the aviator of the year. How did it set you up for that? How, how was that year special or, or just the, the right moment of serendipity and timing and opportunity and luck combined uh, for you?
1: Well, my first, we call them fleet tours, is when you finally make it to a squadron outside of a training squadron, like flight school or our fleet replacement squadron. So my first fleet tour was with HMH-465. They're called the Warhorse, and they're out of Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, which is in San Diego, California. So that's where I had my first tour flying the CH-53 Echo. I did, like you mentioned, uh, two deployments with UDP, which is the unit deployment program, to Okinawa, Japan. The first deployment I had with them was fall to spring in 16 to 17, and then the second in 18 to 19. And I think that second year I was kind of set up there for success. So the first deployment was, um, unfortunately, a majority of the exercises in the Pacific were canceled during that first deployment. Um, Trump had just been elected. And the majority of our exercises were going to be in the Philippines. And President Duarte didn't um, support our newly elected president as much as our previous. So The only exercise we really did was a CO-led exercise that went to a tiny island called Ioshima, And we pretty much camped out for two weeks in the range area, practicing expeditionary planning. So that that was the extent, or what I felt was the extent of my contributions for that first deployment, aside from continuing to progress uh, training at our home station at Okinawa on Futema. But the second deployment the CO I had at that time was in favor of a more decentralized command, more more so than I've ever seen in a squadron. And so that type of leadership empowered the Marines and it encouraged everyone to step up, not just administratively, but operationally. And for example, that CO signed off on allowing myself and the other company grade WTI at the time to plan Um, brief the first small CG and conduct the first ever lift of the AH AH-1 Zulu Viper airframe. Um, It had broken down in the range on a small island that's off the coast of Okinawa. And they don't have docks, so there's no boat access to the island. So essentially we needed to break down the aircraft and lift it back to the main portion of Okinawa so that they could conduct maintenance on it so it could get airborne again. Um the same company Grade pilot and I were also involved in planning the execution of the first ever uh forward arming and refueling. Uh that's FARP for refueling points, uh operations of the F-35B, the Lightning II, in the Pacific Theater. Um so strategic uh implications with that um essentially is proof of concept. They they went out to Ioshima and landed at the FCLP pad there, which is a constructed essentially a, a boat landing set up but without without a boat um just on the um, on the land there by the runway so but it's simulating that you know they're coming in to land on a boat and then uh, 53s carried all of the gas. and we also had uh training bombs uh GBUs that our ordnance uh, conducted training with their ordnance shop and we were able to upload all of that so again simulating This you know organic Marine Corps aviation supply chain that we could essentially if we did it there we could take it anywhere. Um, So that that was pretty cool to be involved in and watch that planning process unfold. Uh, There were field grade WTIs in the squadron to include my CO at the time who could have been scheduled to fly or uh, brief for any of those events, but the CO allowed more junior pilots to have those opportunities and. We were, just, we were able to gain so much experience from working through those processes for planning, briefing, and executing. And I think that just ultimately led us all to grow uh, way more than we could have uh, in the past.
0: Yeah, that, that makes uh, absolute sense. And it's, it boils down to timing. Had not um, those things that occurred, and unfortunately, one of those is, you know, had not that, that airframe broken down, nobody would have been able to perform the first lift of that airframe. Uh, so it's unfortunate that it broke, but it was fortunate for you because you guys do something that would otherwise uh, never occur. Because why would we ever dismantle an airframe just to pick it up and move it? Um,
1: <laughs> I would support that, though, if anyone wanted to do it.
0: <laughs> I, 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 there is... Gotta be cheaper stuff for us to break and, and for you to pick <laughs> up and, and fly around. Um, Humvees. Humvees are definitely cheaper and, uh, you know, they break sure. all the time, actually. It's like common. <laughs> uh, readiness on a Humvee is a, is a uh, different argument for a different day. So so you got two back to back UDPs, which is awesome. And obviously, that set you up, set you up for a lot of first, and that gave you the opportunities and the, the CEO's personality and willingness to accept risk. Giving a you know junior captain uh, a WTI uh, nonetheless, but giving a junior captain uh, the briefing and the flying responsibilities, uh, you know, for such a high disability event when you have uh, field grades that you, you know have the experience and everything. And the likelihood of uh, anything happening is, is arguably reduced through their experience. That's that's some serious risk taking for, for the CEO, and that's uh, notable to say the least. Now, speaking of risk taking, and and, and uh, what CEOs are allowed or or willing to accept in risk when they're talking about deciding who goes, who stays, and, and what opportunities are afforded them. Um, do you have any experience with the Marine Expeditionary Unit, a MU? Did, uh, did you get passed over for one? Uh, or did your timing not align uh, to get out on a boat and float around?
1: Uh, so a MU would be another deployment option I could have had from the West Coast. Um, When I checked into my squadron at the time, the CEO told uh, myself and the other female who was my peer checking in at the time that he planned to send two female pilots on the next mew that was going to chop. Chopped his change of operational command. Um, He said he was going to choose one from our peer group and one of the two more senior females Um, That way, the women could pair up on the boat, and we wouldn't be by ourselves. When the personnel list essentially came out months later, and uh, to my understanding, the the choosing of who goes on those deployments are largely a result of all the senior officers getting in a room and going person by person, talking strengths, weaknesses, where they're projecting, and essentially how comfortable, they would feel sending that person to be the signer for the aircraft or the aircraft commander on the boat, because that's ultimately the goal is people going as co-pilots, gain hours, experience, and then they're able to sign as the aircraft commander. Um, When that list came out, none of the females were on the list for the Mew, so uh, we were all surprised just based off of what the CEO had told us on check-in. But uh, I guess it boiled down to the senior officers didn't feel either of the two senior female pilots were ready for that kind of deployment. So then as a result, neither I or my other female peer would be considered to go as a lone female on the boat. And at the time, I I felt that I was missing out on a career opportunity because that could have ultimately made me more competitive against my counterparts who would have done just a UDP or no deployment at all. For, for some people, unfortunately, they don't get an opportunity to deploy. Um, I was told as a new co-pilot on the Mew on paper that that would look better for boards than the other two options. So I felt frustrated that I potentially wasn't looked at for that deployment purely because of my gender and only the potential that something bad could happen. I did get an opportunity later to speak with my CO, and looking back on it, I believe he was genuinely trying to shield us from having to experience the heartache that results from natural segregation that can occur on the boat by living in different quarters and getting on different schedules in the majority of the male pilot group. And I'm, I'm glad he was willing to talk to me about his thought process in making that kind of decision because it's provided me something to think over and keep in mind over these past couple of years and as I go forward in my career as leaders. While we attempt to look out for the well-being of our Marines, we also have to ensure we're not hindering them in the process and Especially if we're solely basing that decision on assumptions of what may happen or th- things that may have happened in the past. Uh, but I like to think the Marine Corps is continually evolving, and especially in regards to inclusivity. No, and, and you bring up a really good point um,
0: about some of the, the natural segregation that occurs. In, you know, the. Colloquial term is is locker room talk, and and I'm not using that, but, you know, you go out for unit PT in the morning, everybody's showering afterwards, obviously, the the showering areas and and restrooms, the heads, are in separate areas, and if you're in garrison, uh, you're talking about what you're doing that weekend, you're talking about if the kids have soccer games, if, you know, the wives... You know, have something going on. You know, just banter, just the normal conversational uh, stuff, and you're trying to figure out, you know, what your weekend plans are. If you thought you were going to do X, Y, and Z, and you know, you found out that, you know, it's not happening for whatever reason, and now you have the weekend off, and and you're scrambling to figure out how you're going to fill this this newfound, uh, 24 hours or 48 hours of your life back. Um, and you're not, you're, you're just for no fault of your own. You're just not there. Um, how, how do you sort of deal with, um, that just not being there for no fault of your own? Um, when sort of the, the sidebar conversations just sort of occurred actually to, um, you know, plan things out and and sort of build commodity within a unit Um, you know how do you how do you uh, sort of process and work through through that
1: yeah that's a great question Um, that's something that bothered me to no end when I was a brand new first lieutenant in my fleet squadron and there's definitely a time and place to inviting yourself to things in an appropriate manner but Uh, My advice would be just to not not take those kind of things so personally. I've learned that from experience. The uh, natural segregation that occurs, like you said, it can be also regardless of gender. You know, two guys in in your scenario, two guys, you know, are in the head or they could be at the barbershop and then they make plans to get lunch. Then at lunch, it just snowballs into making a weekend plan or going to the kids' soccer games, like you said. But that doesn't mean it intentionally that they went out of their way to not include certain people. And conversely, I think there can also be a benefit in looking at the, the flip side of that if you're a person that's always trying to get out of work as soon as, you know, the clock hits, uh, you know, 1700 or you're always making plans on your own or logging the minimum time that's required in the office. And you're probably missing out on that opportunity to bond with your Marines because it really is required to be able to anticipate how people are going to react uh, know other personalities or, you know, a little bit behind their thought process to actually have a well-oiled machine, especially when you're going to deploy together. And... As leaders, we need to be cognizant of the contributors to natural segregation. Uh, Example, I actually talked about recently with someone from my TBS platoon, but um, when I was in TBS, all of the rooms for the officers in my platoon were in one hallway, except for two rooms. And those two rooms were the only female rooms of our platoon. They were comprised of women from all of the squads, And there was no reason in particular that our rooms needed to be separated from the males. The remainder of our hallway upstairs consisted of both male and female rooms from the next platoon. And as a result of us being on a different floor than the entire rest of our platoon, our peer leadership on more than one occasion did not come up the stairs to pass us word. You know, out of sight, out of mind. If they got word from our SPC, whose office was also on their floor, they would just yell down the hallway, and that sufficed for everyone living on the same floor, but there were multiple occasions when someone would come running up the stairs, you could hear them out of breath, kind of an afterthought, knock on our doors, uh, you know, yelling, hurry up, come, come down and form with the platoon. And so by the time we'd get, get downstairs and outside, all the males were already formed up, and we ultimately earn a scolding from our SPC on tardiness or being slow. And it made all the females look bad being, being laid on multiple occasions, but in reality it was the leadership not reaching out to the Marines and, you know, kind of an affront to the females. I think it just gave a bad rap even from the get-go. And that's a different, I think TBS is a formative part. You're in groups with your peers and being evaluated by your peers. So, you know, it, Ultimately, was out of our hands whether people chose to come upstairs or not, or uh, I guess another option could have been that we could have camped out downstairs, but sometimes that's not realistic if you're trying to accomplish things in your room, on a computer, cleaning your weapon, things like that. Um, so my lesson learned from that is don't forget the Marines on the second floor.
0: Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. For more information about today's guest and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room Podcast has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at host at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.